Part one of Part first of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Trilby by Georges du Maurier. Part first. Part one. Mimi Pinson est une blonde, une blonde que l'on connaît. Elle n'a qu'une robe au monde, l'ondeur irette et qu'un bonnet. It was a fine, sunny, showery day in April. The big studio window was open at the top and let in a pleasant breeze from the northwest. Things were beginning to look shipshape at last. The big piano, a semi-grand by Broadwood, had arrived from England by the little quickness, la petite vitesse, as the goods trains are called in France, and lay, freshly tuned, alongside the eastern wall. On the wall opposite was a panoply of foils, masks and boxing gloves. A trapeze a knotted rope, and two parallel cords, supporting each a ring, depended from a huge beam in the ceiling. The walls were of the usual dull red, relieved by plaster casts of arms and legs and hands and feet, and Dante's mask and Michelangelo's alto rilievo of Lida and the Swan, and a centaur and lapith from the Elgin marbles. On none of these had the dust as yet had time to settle. There were also studies in oil from the nude, copies of Titian, Rembrandt, Velasquez, Rubens, Tintoret, Leonardo da Vinci, none of the school of Botticelli, Mantegna and co., a firm whose merits had not as yet been revealed to the many. Along the walls, at a great height, ran a broad shelf, on which were other casts in plaster, terracotta, imitation bronze, a little Theseus, a little Venus of Milo, a little Discobulus, a little flayed man threatening high heaven, an act that seemed almost pardonable under the circumstances, a lion and a boar by Barry, an anatomical figure of a horse with only one leg left and no ears, a horse's head from the pediment of the Parthenon, earless also, and the bust of Clichy, with her beautiful low brow, her sweet wan gaze, and the ineffable forward shrug of her dear shoulders that makes her bosom as a nest, a rest, a pillow, a refuge, the likeness of a thing to be loved and desired forever and sought for and wrought for and fought for by generation after generation of the sons of men. Near the stove hung a gridiron, a frying pan, a toasting fork and a pair of bellows. In an adjoining glazed corner cupboard were plates and glasses, black-handled knives, pewter spoons, and three-pronged steel forks, a salad bowl, vinegar cruets, an oil flask, two mustard pots, English and French, 
and such like things, all scrupulously clean. On the floor, which had been stained and waxed at considerable cost, lay two cheetah skins and a large Persian praying rug. One half of it, however, under the trapeze and at the end farthest from the window, beyond the model throne, was covered with coarse matting, that one might fence or box without slipping down and splitting oneself in two, or fall without breaking any bones. Two other windows of the usual French size and pattern, with shutters to them and heavy curtains of baize, opened east and west, to let in dawn or sunset, as the case might be, or haply keep them out. And there were alcoves, recesses, irregularities, odd little nooks and corners, to be filled up as time wore on, with endless personal knick-knacks, bibelots, private properties, and acquisitions, things that make a place genial, home-like, and good to remember, and sweet to muse upon, with fond regret, in after years. And an immense divan spread itself in width and length and delightful thickness just beneath the big north window, the business window. A divan so immense that three well-fed, well-contented Englishmen could all lie lazily smoking their pipes on it at once, without being in each other's way, and very often did. At present one of these Englishmen, a Yorkshireman, by the way, called Taffy, and also the man of blood, because he was supposed to be distantly related to a baronet, was more energetically engaged. Bare-armed, in his shirt and trousers, he was twirling a pair of Indian clubs round his head. His face was flushed, and he was perspiring freely and looked fierce. He was a very big young man, fair, with kind but choleric blue eyes, and the muscles of his brawny arm were strong as iron bands. For three years he had borne Her Majesty's commission, and had been through the Crimean campaign without a scratch. He would have been one of the famous six hundred in the famous charge at Balaclava, but for a sprained ankle caught playing leapfrog in the trenches, which kept him in hospital on that momentous day, so that he lost his chance of glory or the grave, and this humiliating misadventure had sickened him of soldiering for life, and he never quite got over it. Then, feeling within himself an irresistible vocation for art, he had sold out, and here he was in Paris hard at work, as we see. He was good-looking, with straight features, but I regret to say that, besides his heavy plunger's moustache, he wore an immense pair of drooping auburn whiskers, of the kind that used to be called Piccadilly weepers, and were afterwards affected by Mr. Southern in Lord Dundreary. It was a fashion to do so then for such of our gilded youth as could afford the time and the hair. The bigger and fairer the whiskers, the more beautiful was thought the youth. It seems incredible in these days, when even Her Majesty's household brigade go about with smooth cheeks and lips, like priests or play-actors. 
What's become of all the gold used to hang and brush their bosoms? Another inmate of this blissful abode, Sandy, the lad of Cockpen, as he was called, sat in similarly simple attire at his easel, painting at a lifelike little picture of a Spanish toreador serenading a lady of high degree in broad daylight. He had never been to Spain, but he had a complete toreador's kit, a bargain which he had picked up for a mere song in the Boulevard du Temple, and he had hired the guitar. His pipe was in his mouth, reversed, for it had gone out, and the ashes were spilled all over his trousers, where holes were often burned in this way. Quite gratuitously, and with a pleasing Scotch accent, he began to declaim, A street there is in Paris famous, for which no rhyme our language yields. Rue nerved I pity shong its name is, the new street of the little fields. And then, in his keen appreciation of the immortal stanza, he chuckled audibly, with a face so blithe and merry, and well pleased, that it did one good to look at him. He also had entered life by another door. His parents, good pious people in Dundee, had intended that he should be a solicitor, as his father and grandfather had been before him. And here he was in Paris famous, painting toreadors and spouting the ballad of the Bouillabaisse, as he would often do out of sheer lightness of heart, much oftener indeed than he would say his prayers. Kneeling on the divan, with his elbow on the window-sill, was a third and much younger youth. The third he was little Billy. He had pulled down the green baize-blind, and was looking over the roofs and chimney-pots of Paris, and all about with all his eyes, munching the while a roll and a savoury saveloy, in which there was evidence of much garlic. He ate with great relish, for he was very hungry. He had been all the morning at Carell's studio, drawing from the life. Little Billy was small and slender, about twenty or twenty-one, and had a straight white forehead veined with blue, large dark blue eyes, delicate regular features, and coal-black hair. He was also very graceful and well-built, with very small hands and feet, and much better dressed than his friends, who went out of their way to outdo the denizens of the Quartier Latin in careless eccentricity of garb, and succeeded. And in his winning and handsome face there was just a faint suggestion of some possible, very remote Jewish ancestor, just a tinge of that strong, sturdy, irrepressible, indomitable, indelible blood which is of such priceless value in diluted homeopathic doses like the dry white spanish wine called montijo which is not meant to be taken pure but without a judicious admixture of which no sherry can go round the world and keep its flavour intact or like the famous bulldog strain which is not beautiful in itself and yet just for lacking a little of the same no greyhound can ever hope to be a champion. 
so at least i have been told by wine merchants and dog fanciers the most voracious persons that can be fortunately for the world and especially for ourselves most of us have in our veins at least a minim of that precious fluid whether we know it or show it or not tant pis pour les autres as little billy munched he also gazed at the busy place below the place saint anatole des arts at the old houses opposite some of which were being pulled down no doubt lest they should fall of their own sweet will in the gaps between he would see discoloured old cracked dingy walls with mysterious windows and rusty iron balconies of great antiquity sights that set him dreaming dreams of medieval french love and wickedness and crime bygone mysteries of paris one gap went right through the block and gave him a glimpse of the river the cité and the ominous old morgue a little to the right rose the great towers of notre dame de paris into the checkered april sky indeed the top of nearly all paris lay before him with a little stretch of the imagination on his part and he gazed with a sense of novelty an interest and a pleasure for which he could not have found any expression in mere language paris 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 the very name had always been one to conjure with whether he thought of it as a mere sound on the lips and in the ear or as a magical written or printed word for the eye and here was the thing itself at last and he he himself ipsissimus in the very heart of it to live there and learn there as long as he liked and make himself the great artist he longed to be then his meal finished he lit a pipe and flung himself on the divan and sighed deeply out of the overfull contentment of his heart he felt he had never known happiness like this never even dreamed its possibility and yet his life had been a happy one he was young and tender was little billy he had never been to any school and was innocent of the world and its wicked ways innocent of french especially and the ways of paris and its latin quarter he had been brought up and educated at home had spent his boyhood in london with his mother and sister who now lived in devonshire on somewhat straitened means his father who was dead had been a clerk in the treasury he and his two friends taffy and the lad had taken this studio together the lad slept there in a small bedroom of the studio taffy had a bedroom at the hotel de seine in the street of that name little billy lodged at the hotel corneille in the place de l'audion he looked at his two friends and wondered if any one living or dead had ever had such a glorious pair of chums as these whatever they did whatever they said was simply perfect in his eyes they were his guides and philosophers as well as his chums 
On the other hand, Taffy and the lad were as fond of the boy as they could be. His absolute belief in all they said and did touched them nonetheless that they were conscious of its being somewhat in excess of their deserts. His almost girlish purity of mind amused and charmed them, and they did all they could to preserve it. Even in the Quartier Latin, where purity is apt to go bad, if it be kept too long. They loved him for his affectionate disposition, his lively and caressing ways, and they admired him far more than he ever knew. For they recognized in him a quickness, a keenness, a delicacy of perception, in matters of form and color, a mysterious facility and felicity of execution a sense of all that was sweet and beautiful in nature and a ready power of expressing it that had not been vouchsafed to them in any such generous profusion and which as they ungrudgingly admitted to themselves and each other amounted to true genius and when one within the immediate circle of our intimates is gifted in this abnormal fashion we either hate or love him for it in proportion to the greatness of his gift, according to the way we are built. So Taffy and the lad loved little Billy, loved him very much indeed. Not but what little Billy had his faults. For instance, he didn't interest himself very warmly in other people's pictures. He didn't seem to care for the lad's guitar-playing Toreador, nor for his serenaded lady, at all events, he never said anything about them, either in praise or blame. He looked at Taffy's realisms, for Taffy was a realist, in silence, and nothing tries true friendship so much as silence of this kind. But then, to make up for it, when they all three went to the Louvre, he didn't seem to trouble much about Titian either or Rembrandt, or Velasquez, Rubens, Veronese, or Leonardo. He looked at the people who looked at the pictures, instead of at the pictures themselves, especially at the people who copied them, the sometimes charming young lady painters, and these seemed to him even more charming than they really were. And he looked a great deal out of the Louvre windows where there was much to be seen, more Paris, for instance, Paris, of which he could never have enough. But when, surfeited with classical beauty, they all three went and dined together, and Taffy and the lad said beautiful things about the old masters and quarrelled about them, he listened with deference and rapt attention and reverentially agreed with all they said and afterwards made the most delightfully funny little pen-and-ink sketches of them, saying all these beautiful things, which he sent to his mother and sister at home, so lifelike, so real, that you could almost hear the beautiful things they said, so beautifully drawn that you felt the old masters couldn't have drawn them better themselves, and so irresistibly droll, that you felt that the old masters could not have drawn them at all, any more than Milton could have described the quarrel between Sayre Gamp and Betsy Prigg, 
no one in short but little billy little billy took up the ballad of the bouillabaisse where the lad had left it off and speculated on the future of himself and his friends when he should have got to forty years an almost impossibly remote future these speculations were interrupted by a loud knock at the door and two men came in first a tall bony individual of any age between thirty and forty-five of jewish aspect well-featured but sinister he was very shabby and dirty and wore a red beret and a large velveteen cloak with a big metal clasp at the collar his thick heavy languid lustreless black hair fell down behind his ears on to his shoulders in that musician-like way that is so offensive to the normal englishman he had bold brilliant black eyes with long heavy lids a thin sallow face and a beard of burnt-up black which grew almost from under his eyelids and over it his moustache a shade lighter fell in two long spiral twists he went by the name of svengali and spoke fluent french with a german accent and humorous german twists and idioms and his voice was very thin and mean and harsh and often broke into a disagreeable falsetto his companion was a little swarthy young man a gypsy possibly much pitted with a smallpox and also very shabby he had large soft affectionate brown eyes like a king charles spaniel he had small nervous veiny hands with nails bitten down to the quick and carried a fiddle and a fiddlestick under his arm without a case as though he had been playing in the street bonjour mes enfants said svengali je vous amène mon ami Sheko, qui joue du violon comme un ange little billy who adored all sweet musicianers jumped up and made Sheko as warmly welcome as he could in his early french ha le piano exclaimed svengali flinging his red beret on it and his cloak on the ground j'espère qu'il est bon et bien d'accord and sitting down on the music stool he ran up and down the scales with that easy power that smooth even crispness of touch which reveal the master then he fell to playing chopin's impromptu in a flat so beautifully that little billy's heart went nigh to bursting with suppressed emotion and delight he had never heard any music of chopin's before nothing but british provincial home-made music melodies with variations annie laurie the last rose of summer the blue bells of scotland innocent little motherly and sisterly tinklings invented to set the company at their ease on festive evenings and make all-round conversation possible for shy people who fear the unaccompanied sound of their own voices and whose genial chatter always leaves off directly the music ceases he never forgot that impromptu 
which he was destined to hear again one day in strange circumstances. Then Svengali and Jeko made music together, divinely, little fragmentary things, sometimes consisting of but a few bars, but these bars of such beauty and meaning, scraps, snatches, short melodies, meant to fetch, to charm immediately, or to melt, or sadden, or madden, just for a moment, and that knew just when to leave off. Chardash, gypsy dances, Hungarian love plaints, things little known out of Eastern Europe in the fifties of this century, till the lad and Taffy were almost as wild in their enthusiasm as little Billy, a silent enthusiasm too deep for speech. And when these two great artists left off to smoke, the three Britishers were too much moved even for that, and there was a stillness. Suddenly there came a loud knuckle-rapping at the outer door, and a portentous voice of great volume, and that might almost have belonged to any sex, even an angel's, uttered the British milkman's yodel. Milk below! And before anyone could say entrez, a strange figure appeared, framed by the gloom of the little antechamber. It was the figure of a very tall and fully developed young female, clad in the grey overcoat of a French infantry soldier, continued netherwards by a short, striped petticoat, beneath which were visible her bare white ankles and insteps and slim, straight, rosy heels, clean-cut and smooth as the back of a razor. Her toes lost themselves in a huge pair of male slippers, which made her drag her feet as she walked. She bore herself with easy, unembarrassed grace, like a person whose nerves and muscles are well in tune, whose spirits are high, who has lived much in the atmosphere of French studios, and feels at home in it. This strange medley of garments was surmounted by a small bare head with short, thick, wavy brown hair, and a very healthy young face, which could scarcely be called quite beautiful at first sight, since the eyes were too wide apart, the mouth too large, the chin too massive, the complexion a mass of freckles. Besides, you can never tell how beautiful, or how ugly, a face may be, till you have tried to draw it. But a small portion of her neck, down by the collar-bone, which just showed itself between the unbuttoned lapels of her military coat-collar, was of a delicate, privet-like whiteness that is never to be found on any French neck, and very few English ones. Also she had a very fine brow, broad and low, with thick level eyebrows much darker than her hair, a broad, bony, high bridge to her short nose, and her full, broad cheeks were beautifully modelled. She would have made a singularly handsome boy. End of part one, part first.